Hello and welcome to another episode of Strewn Along the Path. This is a side podcast to the Journey Into podcast, where many things that are strewn along the path or left on the editing room floor or computer, I guess, make their way here. And it's also a place where I can talk about anything I want to. And uh, today, it's going to be Star Wars free. I know, it's rough. But uh, I guess I can announce that uh, Rich Outfield and I are working on starting up a new podcast called Delusions of Grandeur. And it's going to be coming your way soon. And we're going to have a podcast where we just talk about Star Wars. And I'm pretty excited about it. I think it'll be a lot of fun. And I will definitely let you know when that happens. But other than that, we're not talking about Star Wars here on this podcast. Today I'm going to talk about a little bit about the Parsec Awards and kind of give you an idea of, of what what goes on with the Parsec Awards, what it's all about. I'm not going to go into great detail about the awards themselves, but just my involvement in it this year. Um, but a little bit of background, the Parsec Awards were created, I don't know, seven years ago uh, by Mer Lafferty and uh, Michael R. Menengay, and I believe... Tracy Hickman as well. And the awards were just set up to to recognize podcasts, and particularly podcasts that talk about speculative fiction. It's it's pretty much a speculative fiction podcast awards. And that's where I guess Parsec comes from. And it's it's interesting, you know, I've I've been introduced to podcasts that way and it and it's nice that there's somewhere where these podcasts can be recognized and acknowledged. And it's been interesting the last couple of years since I started the Journey Into podcast to be involved in that. Um, it's, it's an honor that uh, somebody nominated the show last year. Um, last year I only had one nomination and was a finalist and didn't, didn't win, but that's, that's okay. And then this year... I was, I had three different nominations. I had a nomination for Alec and Elizabeth in the End of the World by Michael Gray. And then I had a, I had a nomination for The Last Days of the Kelly Gang by David D. Levine. And then I got just a general podcast nomination. And so I submitted entries for each of those. Alec and Elizabeth in the End of the World was pretty easy because it was a short story and a short podcast. And and so there, there are certain guidelines or format that you have to follow for your submission. Once you're nominated, you can put in a submission. And anybody that's, that's put in a parsec knows exactly what I'm talking about. But essentially, for all of the nominations I had received this year, I... I had 30 seconds for an intro and then 30 minutes to put a sample of the story. Uh, so Alec and Elizabeth, as I said, was pretty easy because it was less than 30 minutes. So I just put the entire episode there. Last Days of the Kelly Gang, I had spliced it up. You're allowed four different segments of the story. And so I had sliced it up into four different segments, and I thought it was a pretty good job of, of getting most of the story in there and cutting out parts as well. 
I cut parts out of the middle, but I essentially gave the the flavor and the essence of the whole story from beginning to end, but I took parts out to to pare it down to half an hour. So I did all that, and I liked it, and then I did my intro for it, and my intro for it pretty much said how I was introduced to the story. And if you don't remember me talking about it on the podcast, for the last days of the Kelly Gang, I went to a, a Sefwa reading in Portland, Oregon, and David D. Levine was there, and he read like the first half, just a little over half of his story to us, and then stopped and said, if you want to read more, go get the anthology, blah, 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 blah. And I went up to him at the event and asked him if I could podcast that story. And so I did, and you listened to it, and I I enjoyed that story quite a bit. So anyway, after recording my intro about it, which, you know, wasn't very long, 30 seconds, I had to sum it up pretty quick. But after doing that, I remembered what enticed me to the story in the first place and where he stopped reading. And so I thought, you know what? That's the way I'm going to do my submission this time. I'm going to play the story without taking anything out up to a certain point. The same point that David stopped when he was retelling the story. And maybe that would have the same effect on the Parsec judges that it did on me, where it enticed me. I wanted to hear more of the story. And so that's what I submitted for that one. And it didn't become a finalist. And, you know, who knows why it didn't become a finalist. It could just be, you know, the other stories were better judged or whatever. But it also could have been that decision. Maybe they thought I didn't use my time wisely because it wasn't a full 30 minutes. And maybe they thought, hey, if he's not going to give us at least 30 minutes, it's not worth moving ahead as a finalist. So that might have been a mistake on my part. I probably should have went with the complete story with parts taken out of the middle with transitions and things. But, oh well. (laughs) Hindsight's 20-20. But Alec and Elizabeth and the End of the World did become a finalist and didn't win. And, you know, there it was definitely less than a half-hour sample, but that's all I had to give them was the whole story. So I, I'm sure they, they understood it there. So it's, it's interesting putting those samples together for the Parsec Awards. I kind of enjoy it at this point. It's, it's still kind of new and fun and it's a chance to get in there and edit and, you know, be creative in how you put that together and what you take out. I I kind of enjoy that. And so, so it's kind of fun to put these together, you know, maybe down the road, I'll get I'll get to the point where Big Inklevich felt, you know, he'd done it for six years in a row without any without any results. And so he got kind of tired of putting those Parsec samples together. And I could get to that point at, at some point. But right now I still kind of find it fun. And so that brings me to the third uh, nomination that I received, which was a general podcast award. And when you get that award, you essentially have to choose what category you want to place your uh, podcast into. And so I chose, I think it was uh, fiction, speculative fiction anthology podcast was the, it seemed to fit mine the best. 
You know, it wasn't a humor podcast. It wasn't a music podcast or fan podcast. I guess it could be a fan, but I think the the category that it fit the best was just speculative fiction anthology podcast. And so again, I had 30, 30 minutes and four segments to sample my podcast over the last year. So it was from April to April or May to April. And so, you know, what do you do there? You just kind of have to go with what you think is best. And so I thought today for the pod, for this Strewn Along the Path podcast, I would just play you the sample that I used and then we could talk about it. And I am going to take it off a little bit early because basically the end of my sample is the end of my podcast with all the verbiage at the end. So I'm, I'm probably going to cut it off a little bit short of the 30 minutes. Enjoy. Hello, this is Marshall Latham of the Journey Into podcast, where I regularly feature short stories and flash fiction, typically using a full cast of voice actors. And I also replay old-time radio shows of Specfic. It's a lot of fun, and I like to mix it up and provide my audience with a variety of entertainment. I also sometimes provide commentary on the subject matter or authors at hand. I'm grateful to be nominated for this award, and I hope you enjoy the show. The unknown. Mystery. Space. Science. Have fun. Adventure. Suspense. Fantasy. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. Journey into Welcome. To journey number 45 of the Journey Into Podcast, featuring Barry Coleman, Hero, by Mer Lafferty. I'm your guide in this journey, Marshall Latham, coming to you from Base Camp in Turner, Oregon. It has been quite a summer for superhero movies. We were treated to the best of two major comic companies' movie franchises, one in its debut outing, and one in its final bow both excellent in their own right. But we'll get to that after today's story. Right now, let's focus on some people with powers of a a lesser sort, at least at first glance. Barry Coleman, Hero, was written by the mighty Murr Lafferty. Murr is a freelance writer, podcast producer, geek, fangirl, and mother. She has been published in Escape Pod and Hub Magazine, and has two books in print, Playing for Keeps, to which this story ties into, and Tricks of the Podcasting Masters. She is editor of Escape Pod Magazine, which is a fine podcast that you've heard me mention many times here before. Her new book, The Shambling Guide to New York City, comes out in May of 2013 from Orbit Books. The music for today's journey has been exclusively provided by the Beatnik Turtles. 
So let's journey on over to Seventh City, sometimes called the birthplace of superpowers. Here, superheroes protecting the city from supervillains is pretty commonplace. But those are the second wave supers. There are also people with lesser superpower, those of the first and the third wave, who don't get any press. Our friend Barry Coleman is a first waver, and he's had a hard day. So let's go with Barry and journey into Keepsy's bar and blow off some steam. Barry Coleman, Hero, by Mer Lafferty. There ain't nothing wrong with wanting powers, I said, frowning into my beer. It had offended me by being almost empty. Everyone wants them. Look at the TV these days. Movies about powers, TV shows about powers, the heroes hawking everything from toothpaste to used car lots. People wouldn't love them if they didn't want to be them. My companion, a sharp-dressed man young enough to be my son, signaled the bartender. She pulled me another beer, the good stuff, and I nodded my thanks. People have called me bitter for my entire life. Can't say as I blame them. I've never denied it. They just say it like I shouldn't be bitter. Like I should just expect not to have powers, just like everyone else. I took a long drink savoring the rich amber. I didn't usually buy beers like this for myself, but when someone else was buying, who am I to say no? Hmm, I can imagine, my companion said. I know many bitter people. He glanced at the man on the bar stool on his left, a scruffy younger man wearing a loud shirt. The man looked up and glared at us. My companion grinned. Mm, don't mind him. He's just mad about missing out on a surfing competition. Third waivers aren't allowed, the other man shouted suddenly. Like I can use my power to fix the competition. Yeah, my power is really good for that. He withdrew again and stirred the ice in his glass with a swizzle stick. The clink of the ice brought me back to my story. Well, see, some people have more right to be bitter than others, I continued. I was supposed to have powers. I was a Zupra baby. My ma took that Zupra drug, the one that either granted powers to kids or killed them in the womb. The man nodded. <laughs> Makes you wonder what they tested it on before giving it to pregnant women. What are you, some kind of conspiracy theorist, I asked? Uh, simply a thought, he said. He stuck out his hand. I'm Peter, by the way. His grip was slightly weak. I shook his hand and said, Barry Coleman, pleased to meet you. But that won't stop us today, so why don't you come with me and let's journey into the future.
Our lips are so close. Son of a brisky, my ancestors spit on your haircut. Oh, I'm the last man on earth. So tell me what it's worth. Am I a beggar or a king? Got no trouble. And up against the wall, you mother. Countdown for blastoff. X minus five, minus four, minus three, minus two, X minus one. Fire! From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand would-be worlds. The National Broadcasting Company presents X minus one. Tonight, the science fiction classic, Knock, by Frederick Brown. Tonight we have a strange story to tell, a sweet, blood-curdling little story that is really only two sentences long. The last man on earth sat alone in a room. There was a knock at the door. Hmm? What's that? Morning, man. What? Who are you? You have regained consciousness. Who are you? I am Zan. I'm still asleep, I must be. You are not asleep. Maybe if I close my eyes, it'll go away. I will not go away, man. Oh. I guess I'm awake. Who... What are you? I am a Zan. What's that? A Zan is intelligent life. Look, I don't... What happened? Where are you from? From Planet 7 in the 3rd Galaxy in the 4th Quadrant. Where? It is not necessary to repeat information which is correct in the original statement. Planet 7? But you mean I'm not on Earth? You are still on your planet. Then what are you doing here? The Zans have annexed your world. You mean you've conquered Earth? Yes, that is correct. We will now prepare your planet for habitation by the Zan. Well, how about the people? What about the population of the world? You are the population of the world. Hmm? Now, wait a minute. I, I can't... I don't understand what's happened. The Zan have landed on your planet. We have removed the lower life forms to prepare for colonization by the Zan. When did all this happen? Two days ago. You have been unconscious until now. 
You really mean I'm the last man on earth? That is correct. Identify yourself now. What? Kindly provide data as to your position in the elementary social order of your planet. Oh. I'm uh, Walter Phelan, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Nathan University. How do you speak English? We have deciphered your written and recorded records. It is not difficult to reconstruct your language. It is a primary type of auditory communication. Oh. Is there anything you want to complete your natural habitat? You mean I'm a prisoner? That is correct. What would you want further in your room? Do I have to stay here? Yes. The rest of my life? Forever. Then you better bring me my books. That uh, will be done. That's rather considerate of you. You know, I've got to call you something. Do you mind if I call you George? It is immaterial. I will be back, Associate Professor of Anthropology. Oh, that's all right, George. Just uh, call me Walter. Very well, Walter. I will be back with your books. All right, George. I'll be seeing you around. You will not be around, Walter. You will be here. One night at dusk, as they crossed a field of long grass, Francis suddenly stopped and said, What's that? Benjamin halted and looked around, but saw nothing. Where? Francis cocked his head. Listen. Then a look of alarm crossed his face, and he said, Get down. He crouched and grabbed Benjamin by the shirt front and pulled him down too. Then Francis slid his sword from its scabbard with one smooth motion. The sword made barely whisper as it came free. Benjamin looked into the sky, which was blue and tan in the fading light. What? What is it? Francis said sternly. Shh. He cocked his head again. Benjamin waited. A breeze rustled through the grass overhead. Then Francis said, Down. And leapt to his feet. He pulled Benjamin up, shoved him, and said, Run, now. Benjamin ran. Everywhere blades of grass stood before him, and he pushed between them. The grass whipped at his face. Then a winged shadow fell over him. A huge scaly foot plucked him from the earth. Talons bit into his sides. Above him beat great dark wings that sent cold air gusting down over him. He twisted to stare up at his captor. It was the dread predator, bane of all mice, the death that comes from above. Benjamin knew its name from a hundred childhood tales. Owl. He was borne up into the trees, then the owl dropped him, and he slammed onto a bed of withered grass, a nest. He was too stunned and hurt to move. His tunic grew damp as blood oozed from his sides where the talons had gashed him. The owl landed and stood over him. Its massive head was crowned with a set of demonic horns, and below them a pair of huge round eyes gazed out with cold malice. The owl spoke in a high, rasping voice. I will catch your friend, too. Then it stepped back, spread its wings, and swooped away. Benjamin managed to crawl as far as the edge of the nest. Then he collapsed. He tugged his dagger from its sheath, but he was so weak he could barely lift the dagger, let alone fight. And what good would a dagger be? What good would any weapon be against that monster? In the dim light, the branches overhead reminded him of the iron bars of his cell back in Kingsboro. He felt an ache of longing. Why hadn't he stayed there, safe? He was no knight to brave the wilds. And now it was hopeless. Soon he'd be dead. 
Some time later he heard an awful rustle of feathers. He turned to see the owl settle on the branch beside the nest. It said, Your friend was too quick. I cannot find him. Benjamin held up the dagger. Stay back. The owl laughed. Fool, you cannot defeat me. I have consumed a hundred mice and will consume a hundred more. Surrender your weapon, and I will grant you the mercy of being swallowed whole. Else I will devour you in pieces. Benjamin's hand trembled violently. The owl stepped toward him. Then, from behind the owl, came Francis's voice. Enough. Release him. I command you. Benjamin couldn't believe it. Francis had climbed the tree and now stood on the branch with them. For the moment, Benjamin dared to hope that Francis could somehow bargain with the owl. The owl's head rotated all the way around to face Francis. And who are you? Francis stepped forward. I am Francis, son of Michael and king of this realm. He raised his sword so that its edge was aimed at the owl's throat. I am your death if you defy me. Benjamin felt a fresh rush of panic. Was Francis crazy? The owl said, I have dined on the bones of a hundred mice, but never a king. You will be a true delicacy, Francis, son of Michael. It fluttered toward him, its claws reaching for him. Francis leapt at it, his sword posed to strike. The owl panicked and tried to reverse course, and Francis thrust his sword straight into its looming right eye. The owl screeched and flopped backward, and Francis yanked the sword free and landed lightly on the branch and kept advancing. The owl shambled to its feet, blood streamed from its ruined eye. Francis circled to the owl's right so that it couldn't see him, and it turned to try to keep him in view. It wiped blood from its face, then hunched forward to seek him with its good eye. And Francis stabbed that eye too, and the beast was blinded. Then Francis hacked at the owl, at its thigh, its belly, its wings. The owl moaned and staggered away. Then, as it teetered at the edge of the branch, Francis leapt onto its chest. He grabbed its feathers with his left hand, and with his right, he rammed his sword straight through the owl's throat, deep into its head. The owl toppled backwards, with Francis still clutching it, and together they plunged over the side. It is evident that we are hurrying onwards to some exciting knowledge, some never-to-be-imparted secret whose attainment is destruction. Perhaps this current leads us to the southern pole itself. It must be confessed that a supposition apparently so wild has every probability in its favor. The crew pace the deck with unquiet and tremulous step. But there is upon their countenances an expression more of the eagerness of hope than of the apathy of despair. In the meantime, the wind is still in our poop, and as we carry a crowd of canvas, the ship is at times lifted bodily from out the sea. Oh, horror upon horror! The ice opens suddenly to the right and to the left, and we are whirling dizzily in immense concentric circles round and round the borders of a gigantic amphitheater, the summit of whose walls is lost in the darkness and the distance. 
but little time will be left to me to ponder upon my destiny. The circles rapidly grow small. We are plunging madly within the grasp of the whirlpool. And amid a roaring and bellowing and thundering of ocean and of tempest, the ship is quivering. Oh, God! And going down. I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but I'm a big fan of the epistolatory format of story writing. And if you don't know what that means, it's when the story is in the format of somebody's letter to somebody else, or somebody's journal writings, or in this case, a manuscript found in a bottle. (laughs) And you know, I, I can't help as I picture the ship about to go down into the whirlpool and be sucked down to whatever fate awaits them. And as our narrator hurls the bottle away from the ship, not knowing what its fate or his own will be, you know, I I can almost hear his thoughts. impressed with Dave's reading for this, not just because it was an excellent narration, but also because he pulled off that French phrase at the very beginning. I told him when I asked him to read the story that if he wanted to leave that part out, that it was optional whether he wanted to try to read that or not. But man, he pulled it off. And I thought I'd share with you what that phrase means. So, qui n'a plus... what? Well... What was that again, Dave? Qui n'a plus qu'un moment à vivre n'a plus rien à dissimuler. Right, what he said. So what that means in English is, he who has only a moment to live no longer has anything to hide. And so I I think that applies to our, our narrator here. And I also looked into where that quote was from, and it was written by Philippe Quinault, who was a French dramatist and librettist, one who writes a libretto. And a libretto is just basically the text of a dramatic musical work, such as an opera. And Attis was just that. It was a tragic opera that was written in the 1600s. Now, Poe also put a note at the end of this story, and the note reads, The manuscript found in a bottle was originally published in 1833, and it was not until many years afterwards that I became acquainted with the maps of Mercator, in which the ocean is represented as rushing by four mouths into the northern polar gulf to be absorbed into the bowels of the earth, the pole itself being represented by a black rock towering to a prodigious height. And you know, many people think that Poe wrote this story as a parody of some of the pseudoscientific theories of the time, One of those theories being the hollow earth theory, you know, suggesting that the earth was hollow and the waters of the ocean, you know, emptied into this hollow earth. One of the early and most famous proponents of this theory was John Cleves Sims Jr. And he had proposed making an expedition to the North Pole. 
and even the United States president at the time, John Quincy Adams, indicated that he would approve of such an expedition. Uh, but he left office before that could happen. And Andrew Jackson, who came in as the next president, kind of put a stop to that attempt of that expedition. But that didn't stop the theory from progressing and for people writing books about it and stuff like that. But it's kind of an interesting theory and kind of an interesting uh, perspective to look at this story at. Uh, you know, I, everybody has their opinion, I guess. And, you know, Poe's work falls under the literature category. And so it's been analyzed and reanalyzed and people have come up with what they think are the themes and the, the reasons for the things that he writes. But, you know, I, I think that interpretation is definitely up to each reader. And, uh, you know, there isn't one answer for every story. And even even with contemporary writers, you know, if Tim Pratt writes a story, he may have several things in his mind as he's writing that story and several uh, plot points or even personal points that he's trying to, to make in his writing. But that may be read differently by the reader. Um, and that, So that's true with any author and any, any piece of fiction out there. It is up for interpretation. And I guess when I listen to this story, I get more of a, a Lovecraftian vibe from this story that you know, something supernatural is happening here and there's there's evil entities at work. And you know I, I see this ship of undead people that our narrator has crashed upon. And who knows what awaits them at the bottom of this whirlpool. Um, I guess I picture more of a sinister fate for them, like this is going down into the depths of hell kind of thing, uh, kind of along the lines of the poem, The City and the Sea. So that's always kind of the feeling that I've got from the story. And, you know, Poe has inspired many, many writers, um, but Poe definitely was an influence on Lovecraft as he was doing his writing. And their their styles are different. But as, in this, as you can see in this story, there are definitely similarities and definitely cues that Lovecraft got from Poe that he used in his fiction, but he did his own thing with it as well. But H.P. Lovecraft has been quoted as saying that Poe is his god of fiction. He was his go-to author. He, he said that Edgar Allan Poe was his model. And here, here's a quote that I wanted to read. This is something that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft wrote to Fritz Leiber. Next to Blackwood, Poe stands first in basic seriousness and convincingness, though his themes tend to center in limited manifestations of the terrestrially gruesome and in sinister twists of morbid human psychology. In total effect, he probably transcends Blackwood, and indeed all rivals. That is, what he does tell is told with a potent art and demonic force which no one else can even approach. Well, high praise. Jules Verne was also quite a fan of Poe's, and he used a lot of elements from Poe's stories in his own fiction. Um, you know, he, you have the Poe's story, The Balloon Hoax, which Verne picked up on and he used in his Around the World in 80 Days. And then I guess come to think of the hollow earth theory, you know, you could include the uh, journey to the center of the earth. You know, the reason that Poe is often recognized as the father of science fiction is because he often presents 
his work of fiction as a believable story by including accurate factual details in there. And that definitely inspired Verne. In fact, Poe's only novel, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, served as inspiration for Jules Verne to write his sequel to that novel called The Antarctic Mystery. Poe's novel, which I haven't read, um, but I've read about it, uh, but it ends very abruptly and doesn't give a lot of closure that you would expect uh, from such a long piece of work. And so I think Jules Verne tried to take the opportunity to finish off that novel and to also pay homage to Poe by writing a similar type of work. Um, there's, There's many, many authors... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, even current writers like Stephen King. Stephen King says of Poe that he wasn't just a mystery suspense writer. He was the first. And that's a whole other genre that that we could get into, but uh, I'm not going to do that today. Maybe we'll we'll get more into that next year when we do Edgar Allan Poe Month. But I, I've really enjoyed this experience, and hopefully I've been able to showcase some of Poe's work that you haven't heard of before. And uh, hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, but stay tuned. We will be back next week, or soon, thereunto, <laughs> um, with uh, our first place winner in the Edgar Allan Poe contest. And that I might not get that out by the end of the month. So Edgar Allan Poe month uh, might extend a bit into February. But I did get a late start this month with uh, because of the uh, New Media Expo and traveling and things like that. So we can call a month, you know, pretty much whatever we want. We don't have to go by the standard calendar, right? But I do look forward to presenting you next week's story. And it'll be The Mask of the Red Death by Lee Lackey. So... Tune in next week, folks. And please, let me know what you think of Edgar Allan Poe Month on the forums. You can get to the forums by going to journeyinto.freeforums.org And I'd love to hear from you there. So until next time, beware of wind in your poop, and journey on. The Journey Into Podcast is produced under Creative Commons Attribution. So there it is. That's the sample that I sent in for the podcast or for the Parsec award as for my, for the podcast category. And, you know, it's, it's open to interpretation. What do you want to present to the Parsec awards that best represents your podcast is what you're trying to do. And so, you know, I wanted to include the stories and the full cast part of that. And I wanted to feature and I wanted to feature an old time radio show because I run those quite a bit. And I wanted to kind of present a, you know, the science fiction, the fantasy, kind of the breadth of the different genres that I podcast in, in speculative fiction. And then I also kind of wanted to present that I do have commentary on the story. It's not just the story but that I have comments and facts, and I thought an Edgar Allan Poe story and talking about Edgar Allan Poe month and those kinds of things would be a good sample of that. And maybe that's where I made my mistake. Again, who knows what the judges clue in on or what they like or don't like, and who knows what other people put in their samples. Uh, It's hard to say, you know, why things get judged differently. 
But I think maybe <clears throat> part of the problem with what I submitted was that long commentary at the end and the end of the show with the with the verbiage and everything. Maybe I should have edited that a little bit better. But I guess my thought was, you know, I start off with the beginning of the podcast with the theme music and everything, and I figured I might as well end with the end of the podcast and, you know, the little do 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 and all that just to, to have a complete show within the sample. And I, the commentary about Edgar Allan Poe and those things was interesting to me, but maybe since I put it in the podcast fiction anthology category, Maybe I had the, maybe the commentary was too long and maybe they, I should, maybe they were looking for more of the story element. So who knows? I, I like the sample. I think it's representative of this last year of the podcast. Of course, there's many other stories I would have liked to include it, but I had to pick four segments. I tried to, to pick a good sample of the types of stories that I do. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you uh, have a good week and... I will talk to you again down the road and we'll find out what else is strewn along the path. Strewn Along the Path is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Feel free to share it, but do not change it or sell it. The theme music, as always, is brought to you by Man in Space.